0: Well, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and there's a lot of these passages in this book that when you go through a whole book, you're kept accountable, and so you can't just skip over the easy passages you've already heard, like, "Whoa, what's Charlie going to be talking about today? Like, this is a heavy passage. Well, we're dealing with church discipline in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and uh, there's some delicate issues that we're going to dive into this morning, and uh, sometimes texts are difficult because they're difficult to understand, and other times texts are difficult because they are plain to understand, but they're difficult because there's some shameful things being talked about or embarrassing things, Um, and then also recognizing the ages of the listeners and the spiritual maturity of the listeners as well, there's different, people are different stages, so if you've never heard anything on these matters, uh, hopefully you'll, you'll come away with uh, seeing the importance of why this is important in the church. And uh, typically, if you're an ordination question by the presbytery, they'll ask, you know, what are the marks of the church? And, uh, and then they'll ask a lot of times, what are the, mar- uh, the attributes of the church, but then what are the marks of the church? And the three marks of the church Uh, coming out of the Protestant Reformation was the pure preaching of God's Word, the right administration of the sacraments, and the third one is the proper use of church discipline. And a lot of churches today are not even practicing church discipline. You're probably wondering, what is that? Well, Al Mohler is one of the leading evangelical speakers big in the Southern Baptist Church, he says that church discipline is the missing mark of the church. Kevin DeYoung, in a blog article, he's a big writer and uh, author, he, he wrote a blog once entitled Our High Places. And it was a reference to the Old Testament kings who had failed to tear down the idols in high places. And DeYoung says that one of the high places in the church is a failure of church discipline. And uh, certainly churches have also abused church discipline and been heavy-handed. And, um, but a lot of churches today, there's, there's, no, there's no church membership. Well, if there's no church membership, it's all pretty much a guarantee that there's really not any church discipline, because there's not even a membership, so you don't even know who's among you and, and who isn't. And Hebrews 13:17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. And so there are people keeping watch over our souls that will have to give an account. And so as we go through this chapter, I want you to, it's real simple. We've got a problem and we've got a solution. And the solution is repeated in four different ways. So we have problem, solution, verses 1 and 2 is the problem, versus the solution is just two to the rest of the chapter. And it's illustrated and clarified. Illustrated in verses 6 to 8 clarified in verses nine to 13. So let's consider God's word to get together this morning. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not even tolerated by pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you'd need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, I, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask for help to understand and apply this text to our own lives. Lord, I know there's people that have been hurt by the church, some may not understand why this is necessary, and pray that you would make it clear to us, and that Lord, we would be sobered by the warnings, and by faith, grow all the more closer to you, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So let's start with the problem, uh, verses 1 and 2. I want you to notice that in verse one, if you look at your text there, it says there is sexual immorality among you, so that's present tense, a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, present tense. And then he says, for a man has his father's wife, not had, has, three times present tense. This is present tense, unrepentant sin. Okay, and so there's only one sin that ultimately leads to church discipline, and church discipline is is in in courts of of the way it works in our church is there's a a formal admonition if you're wondering what this is. Okay, if you were to get in trouble in the church, and let's say you're unrepentant of a particular sin, and and we go and we tell you informally, hey, you know, you can't be, you know doing this particular thing and then you're not repentant well then there would be a formal admonition from the elders and then it would lead over time after much prayer and deliberation and hopefully more counsel then there would be a removing from the Lord's Supper and the elders would not distribute communion to you you wouldn't be allowed to partake of the elements still praying and hoping that repentance would happen and over much mourning and sadness if that continued over a period of time then the church would eventually Uh, remove you from the church that you would no longer be a member of the church and if this is a private sin it would be dealt with privately if it was a public sin then it would be dealt with publicly so I've been in a church where a deacon ran off with another man's wife and that deacon was it was in a worship service it was announced to the whole congregation because everybody knew who this deacon was and that he was no longer a member of the church. Now, does that mean that there's no hope for this individual? It does not. You know, the whole point of this is is the title of the sermon is Protection and Restoration. You're trying to protect the church and restore the brother or sister to to the Lord. And so you're praying all the while that even now that they're out, that the Lord will bring them back in. And we'll talk a little bit more as we go with that. But the only sin that leads to church discipline this is an R.C. Sproul question. What's the only sin that leads to church discipline? And the answer is unrepentance. As long as you're repentant, then the church is not going to continue with church discipline. So, you know, we're not saying that, that if, you, you know, if you fall into the sin of fornication or pornography or adultery, it doesn't mean that you're going to come under discipline as long as you're repentant. But we have had over the years... People fall into all three of those and have been disciplined by our church. And um, you know, I think as our church has been around a little, a little over 35 years, I'm, I know there's been at least four uh, excommunications or, or church disciplines in the church, um, and three since I've been here. Uh, not too many, and uh, the good news is we're, we're dealing in the abstract this morning. There isn't any name that I'm gonna unveil and a lot of times in a sermon, that'll happen, where the pastor's preaching on this because somebody's being removed. And if you read John Piper's sermon on this, it's sad. It's a missionary that is in sin and is being removed. And so his sermon on 1 Corinthians 5 is not in the abstract. They're dealing with somebody, and it's very sad to read. So the problem here in Corinth is, 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 is twofold, okay? First, we have, a, we have a, a scandal, we have a sin that, that's public. Every, it says it's actually reported, meaning everybody knows about it. Every, it's the talk of the town. Everybody knows, so there's a big sin that everybody knows about, and that's the first problem. And so this man is engaged in sexual immorality with his father's wife. It's not his biological mother, or Paul would have called him his mother. And we don't know what happened to this man's mother, either his mom and dad were divorced, or she had died, the biological mother, but the dad had remarried and some scholars have surmised that the father's wife may have been closer in age to the son than the father because they would often marry a younger lady. And so the son is now taken up with his father's wife, they're sleeping together, everybody knows about it, and it's like Woody Allen marrying Mia Farrow's adopted daughter who's 35 years younger and. That was big news in the 90s. And Woody Allen's famous response in Time Magazine, last quote is, the heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to these things. You meet someone and you fall in love, and that's that. And that's Woody Allen to what most would would say was an incestuous relationship. And he just says, the heart wants what it wants. Well, even the Corinthians didn't accept or condone incest. This was off limits. The culture of Corinth was a moral cesspool infected with all kinds of sexual immorality, a huge temple to the pagan goddess of love as you come into the city, and it might as well have been called the pagan goddess of lust. And it's like modern-day Vegas, and it was ripe with all kinds of sexual immorality and prostitution, yet they didn't condone what the church was condoning, that a man has his father's wife. So here the church in Corinth was out-Corinthianizing the Corinthian culture. And worse than that, way to go church, they're proud of their achievement. He says, he calls them, your boasting's not good. He says, you're arrogant because you should have been mourning. They should have humbled themselves and instead they were arrogant. And this is something for us to see here. As Paul moves from this problem to the solution, the problem is this gross sexual morality. But Paul says four times, In this text what they're to do about it and is you know pagans uh, don't even have this problem and yet the church was proud of it they should be mourning and then he says four times here look what he says verse 2 he says at the end of verse 2 let him who has done this be removed from among you verse 5 he says you delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord more on that in a minute in verse seven, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And in verse 13, the very last verses of the text says, purge the evil person from among you. So Paul is very clear about what the church should do. Four times in four different ways, he tells the church that they're to remove this man from among you. And the irony is that when, when something like that is done, the church is, is called, they say, how could you do such a thing? You know, the world looks at, you know, like, often you hear people say, you know, where's the love in that? You know, or, or uh, boy, the church, you're a bunch of arrogant, holy, pious people on your high horse, and it seems like you're on a witch hunt, and it seems like a Salem witch trial, and here you are removing people from the church. It sounds very arrogant. And yet Paul says it's just the opposite. Paul says it's just the opposite. He says it's arrogant to let him stay in the church. Who are you, Corinthians? You should be mourning, and it's arrogant to think you're wiser than God. You see, so Jesus is, and and Paul is just turning this upside down, saying, wait a minute. Actually, to tolerate this and to do nothing about it, thinking that's like the humble approach, is actually the arrogant approach. And the loving and wise thing to do is to remove him from among you. Do you remember what Jesus said to the church in Thyatira? if you read the letters of the seven churches in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, Jesus says this to the church in Thyatira. These are some sobering words. He says, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will now throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But for the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. To one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with a rod of iron." as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I'll give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Man, I've never heard Joel Osteen talk about that one, have you? (laughs) I will strike her children dead. Boy, that is very sobering. God says numerous times in the Old Testament that what's going on in Corinth of this type of sexual immorality, a man with his father's wife, uh, is uh, to be purged from among you. And so the very last verse, purge the evil person from among you, is quoted numerous times in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, particularly in Deuteronomy. And it's referring usually to capital punishment that was to take place so the the purge the evil person from among you from the torah meant take him out and stone him but now as christians in the new testament we're no longer living under a theocracy and paul doesn't say take him out and stone him he says no put him out of the church this was a sin against god and god had said a couple of different times. I'll just read them to you. Leviticus 18.7 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. Leviticus 20.11. If a man lies with his father's wife, he's uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. And Deuteronomy 27, twenty seven, twenty, Curse be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he's uncovered his father's nakedness, and all the people shall say Amen. So this is part of the curses and blessings at Mount uh, Gerizim in, in twenty seven and twenty-eight in Deuteronomy. So there's the problem. And so now we have the solution in verses two through the rest of the chapter. And so I think we understand this, that if, if, if you buy a thing of apples and there's a bad apple in, in, in the batch, what do you got to do? If you've, if you've got one bad apple, what do you got to do? We know you got to remove that, that bad apple or it's going to spoil all the rest of the apples. We know that. We get that. If your appendix ruptures and you say, you know what, I'm just going to chill on that. I'm just going to hang out for a while. Well, Pat, how long is that going to work for you? Not too long. The idea is the doctor has to get to that appendix before it ruptures. And if it ruptures, he's got to get in right away or you're going to be dead. If your curtains are on fire and your drapes are on fire and you say, isn't that cute? Isn't that pretty? You you kind of know like, I mean, I still tease one of my good friends. You know, I was asleep one morning. My friend had another friend come over for breakfast and he actually had a little kitchen fire going. And his friend came, my friend was just so slow to like action, you know. So here these flames are coming up and the guy's coming in and he's alarmed and he runs over and my friend, walks, hey, good morning, how you doing? He's like, yeah. what do you mean? Like you got, you got this kitchen fire, like put the fire out. If you have your drapes on fire, you got to get it out right away or the whole house is going to burn down. We get that. It's like gangrene. If you have gangrene, what do you got to do? You got to cut it out or it's going to spread. Well, Paul compares sin to leaven. That's the illustration, verses 6 to 8. And the idea is a little leaven works through the whole batch of dough, and it, and it causes the whole thing to rise. And he's saying you are now in unleavened in Christ. That's who you are now. You have been made pure. Jesus died to purify for himself his own special people, to make them zealous for good deeds. He died to make them his. And he says those who are his must depart from iniquity. So he died to loose us from our sins in his own blood, Revelation 1.5. So if he's taken this penalty on himself and he has severed us from the bondage and the power and breach of sin, then now that you are in Christ, he tells the church in the next chapter, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? who you have from God, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's why you're to flee sexual immorality, because you've been bought. You're his. So we're to glorify God in our body. And so what happens is if the church never practices church discipline, and if there is sin in the camp, and it's not dealt with, like Achan's sin. I mean, you remember Moses is over there praying, and God basically says, quit praying. Get off your knees. There's sin in the camp. you got to go deal with it. And until Achan was dealt with, there wasn't going to be victories for the people of Israel. So sin has to be dealt with. Otherwise, what happens is everything that happens in the preaching from the pulpit, it becomes suggestions. It's just suggestions. We're just a social club because there's really no... The church at that point is all gums and no teeth. If, if the sin is actually allowed to to tolerate and and to grow and to to wreak its havoc in the church. The church will no longer cease to be, will no longer be the church. The church will be more and more looking like the world and the world isn't actually attracted to that. Do you remember when Ananias and Sapphira were struck down? It said a great fear. The the church multiplied. The church continued to grow. A great fear fell upon the people. But man, those that came to Christ were like, man, this is for real. Like, man, I don't want what happened to them. Like if I'm not going to, you know, I can't play games with God. I was at a church that I grew up in and my, my dad was chairman of the deacons and it was a guy that it was known to everybody in the church. that One of the guys in the choir was sleeping with another, guy, with another lady and she wasn't divorced. And I don't know if he was divorced either. And everybody knew about it. And so it was kind of like, yeah, you know, they're up there leading in the praises of God and in, the, in the choir loft. And the pastor went to deal with it. But in the Baptist church, everybody votes. See, we do things as an elder board. The elder board makes a decision. And a lot of things are done behind closed doors. And that's for, often for the protection of the good of the church. But in this situation, the whole church had to vote on it. And the church said, but we like him. We, we like Mike. He's a good guy. And, and guess what happened? The church vetoed the pastors wanting to have him out, and the church said, no, we, we want him in. How do you think that went over? The pastor ended up leaving the church. Bad news. Um, but the church will have no sustain on it if it does not deal with, with sin in its midst. Some of you have heard the story of Alexander the Great, and he, was, he had come upon one of his soldiers who had become a coward. And Alexander the Great asked him what his name was. And the guy said his name was, he sheepishly said Alexander. And Alexander the Great told him, you don't need to change your name or change your behavior. And so the idea is that now we're Christians. And now your name is Christian. And if you're going to live in sin, love sin, and endeavor to be under its yoke and master to be a bond, and be in bondage to sin, you can't do that and endeavor to become a follower in Christ. You either have to change your name or change your behavior. You can't have it both ways. So we're told here the church was to exercise discipline in the name of the Lord Jesus. There's a reason for this. The church doesn't have any authority on its own. And the only authority the church has, it's not a physical authority, it's not some type of, uh, you know, wielding a sword or anything like that, the only... Authority of the church has is spiritual authority, and it's been delegated by Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has given us a, a blueprint for how we're to deal with discipline, and it's in Matthew 18, and we love to quote that passage. If a brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the name of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. See, Jesus sets forth the process for how church discipline is to function. And, and, you know, Paul says it's very interesting here. He says God judges those who are outside, but in verse 12 he says that we are to judge the things that are inside. And we're talking about things that are clear, gross, things that are obvious so a lot of times with judging you know we're not you know and it's interesting because last week Paul was saying I don't even judge myself you know and he's saying I'm not I'm not worried about being judged by you and yet here in this passage Paul's saying we are to judge each other so which is it I mean is this last week or this week you know and the idea is that when things are clear if we're in a clear sin you know and sometimes the difficulty is that you're, you're dealing with things in the church and you can't really tell if it's immaturity or immorality. And sometimes it's more immaturity. But this is clear. And on these clear issues like this, the church has to get involved. And if somebody has sinned against you, you go and you confront them one-on-one. And if they don't repent, then what does he say? Then you get two or three, and you go again. And then you bring it to the elders. You bring it to the ruling body of the church. And then you bring it to the elders. And it says that if the elders... work with him and he still doesn't repent, then he's to be treated as though a, tax, a Gentile a tax gatherer. The idea is that he's treated as an unbeliever. And so what Paul is describing here is he says, delivering such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Boy, that's a tough passage, isn't it? I mean, the whole goal all along in all of this is restoration, is to, is, is to restore the brothers, And sisters, you know, Galatians 6.1, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keep him watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So what's this idea about the destruction of the flesh then? And is this referring to placing a person outside the realm and umbrella of God's protection and into the realm of Satan or is this passage alluding to something more that this man has given over to Satan so that he can do what he wishes with this man similar to what God allowed Satan to do with Job's health? And I think the answer is both. I think it's both. It's certainly being taken out of God's mighty hand of protection and the Bible does make a distinction between the world and the church. And the one has God's blessing and protection over it, and the other is Satan's kingdom. He's the god of this world, he's called. And he blinds the minds of unbelievers. He's the prince of the power of the air. And this is saying, give him him over to Satan. Let Satan have full reign to do what he wishes to do with this person. Hopefully, that this person will become like the prodigal son who will all of a sudden come to his senses and say, oh my goodness, I'm over here eating pig's food in the pigsty with pigs, and you know what? My father's servants are better fed than this. This stinks. I think I'm gonna go home. That's what we need to happen. And of first John tells us this, first John 5, 18 and 19. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one doesn't touch him. So there you have the protection from God. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So there you have the realm of Satan. And church discipline is removing one from one camp and sending them back to the world. And as their flesh is destroyed, as they... They're in that realm and Satan does what he wishes. And, and listen, the way of the transgressor is hard. And, and who knows what what happens when people are, are sent out into the world, but sometimes there are physical consequences. And we're trusting that God would work his repentance in their hearts. If you remember the, the movie, this is quite a while ago, but the movie Master and Commander, there's a vivid scene in the movie you remember Russell Crowe, and you know, it's the movie about the boats, and one's trying to chase down the other and sink this boat, but there's, in the midst of this uh, movie, there's a terrible storm, and in this storm, one of the crew members is up there trying to fix the um, uh, sail, and the riggings, and and the whole thing goes over into the water, and the guy is in the water, and they're trying to reel him in, and, and the whole, the ship is just being battered by the waves because it's being drugged down by this rigging and and part of the sails in the water and the the ship is going to sink and everybody's trying to save him. Russell Crowe realizes there's only one thing that has to happen here and he grabs the hatchet and he begins to cut the rope and this guy is in the water and it's just this vivid scene you'll never forget if you've seen it I mean once the rope is cut the, the ship is free and the ship can go on and sail now and make it and this poor guy in the water well that was it for him and so the idea here is in in Corinth you you're letting that that ship go but you still are trusting that his spirit will be saved and that he will come back in second corinthians chapter 2 and i used to think this was directly referring to the guy in first corinthians 5 and pommore study i don't think that's the case but in second corinthians chapter 2 there's a brother that repents. So he had been out of the church and now he's repented. And Paul says this to the church. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse six, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So if someone is sent out from the church, and then later they repent, then you love on them and receive them. And often that's harder for a church to to show that kind of grace. But Paul is now writing to the church in 2 Corinthians telling them, forgive the brother and comfort him that he might not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Reaffirm your love for him. I remember a good friend of mine told me a story at the church that he had grown up in and there was a young lady there that had grown up as a covenant child in the church. And she was a member of the church, but then she strayed from the Lord as a young adult, and she moved in with her boyfriend. And her boyfriend wasn't the least interested in being a Christian or a member of Christ's church, and, and, and so the elders, when they found out about it, they wrote her a long letter and called her to account with her sin and begged her to return to the church and were setting up a meeting to engage her and starting this, hopefully not having to start a process of church discipline. But the young lady read the letter and then the boyfriend read the letter and the boyfriend said, they don't love you. And she said, yes, they do. And she grabbed her stuff and she moved out of the house. Brothers and sisters, may that be each of us this morning. That if you're messing around in sin, you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. Know that the church loves you. The church is not out to get you. We're not out to some Salem witch hunt to try to hunt down people and expose things. Well, that's not, but when there's something clear that has to be dealt with that all of this this is a sobering text. Like, none of us wants to be exposed publicly. And the point here is that we're only here a short time. We are moving on. And we are going to stand before the King of Kings. And so what the church is trying to do is to help you get ready for that day. Because that's the day that matters. And so if that's what helps you to get ready for that day and gets the church ready for that day, well, that's what the church has got to be about. And so are you ready for that day? If Jesus was to split the clouds right now, come down from heaven and call all his people together and raise up the dead, and all the dead in Christ would rise up first, and then we too would be called up with him in the air, and we'd be changed, and we'd stand before the Lord and give an account. Are we ready? Maybe you're here today, and you've just never acknowledged the lordship of Jesus and said, you know what, I've just wanted a priest, I've never wanted a king. You need a prophet, the one who will speak to you, who you will follow. You need a priest who will forgive you, but you need a king to follow. Is he your prophet, your priest, and your king? You have to take Jesus, the whole Jesus, and then he will save the whole you. Let's pray together. Lord, come and work here. I confess this is a humbling text. But Lord, we need it because we are prone to wonder, prone to leave the God we love. So take our hearts, take and seal it for the courts above. May we love you more and may we not love this world. Forgive us for we have. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.